You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So we have worked our way through most of the Shorter Catechism, and um, this morning we're at question 100 out of 107, so you can see we're fast approaching the end of our study. Um, So this, you'll notice we looked at what God, the Bible teaches what man is to believe concerning God, questions 1 to 38, and then what duty God requires of man, questions 39 to 107. We looked at the law, looked at the means of grace, and now we're looking at prayer, and the Lord's Prayer in particular. So we'll look at each of these petitions, but tonight, or today, we look at the preface. So let's open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you as the creator of all things, as the one who governs all of human history, and as the redeemer of all the elect, through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior, We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and acceptance in your sight because of his imputed righteousness. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who is pleased to dwell within your people. We ask that he would guide our conversation this morning, that it might serve for the benefit of the bride of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the preface to the Lord's Prayer, by the way, if you need a shorter catechism, we do have a few left up here if anybody wants one. We're looking at the preface, which the question begins, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer given in the catechism is simply this, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. I think it's a pretty concise and comprehensive definition of the preface. You'll notice that there are three parts to the Lord's Prayer, the preface, the petitions, and the conclusion. So we're looking at the preface, and in this preface we're taught how to approach and address the only true object of our prayers, even God. Because that's very important. Um, You don't come into the presence of a holy God haphazardly or flippantly. The ordinary method of coming into his presence and addressing him is to address God the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. That's the ordinary method. That's the typical way we find in Scripture of people addressing God in prayer. Now, again, you can pray to any one of the three persons. It's not wrong. They're all God. And so when you address one person, you're basically incorporating all three persons. You can pray to Jesus. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. But we're taught, because in the order of salvation, the economy of redemption... The Father ordains it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it. So we're taught in the ordinary way of praying to address God the Father. He's addressed because by common consent among the persons in the Trinity, he is first in order. Although all of them are God. 
They're all equal in power and glory. But again, by common consent, among the three persons, God is first in order. So he is our judge, our lawgiver, our king, and as such, he is worthy to be addressed as such. Um, in my background, prayers were often offered in a very... I want to be careful here. I don't want to impugn the motives of anybody because I think they were very sincere. But oftentimes we would pray in such a familiar way that it, there was no sense that you're coming before a king. And I think it's important to remember that he is a judge, a lawgiver, a king. He's worthy to be addressed with those kinds of titles. If you're coming before an earthly king, he would, be, he would require you to address him by a title. <clears throat> if you go before the president of the United States, you address him, Mr. President. You'll notice that, well, I think most people, most of the reporters that interview the president will say, Mr. President. You address those who are superior with those titles of eminency. So earthly monarchs require it, God requires it, and he might have commanded us that we only address him with such titles, but he teaches us in the preface to call him Father. He is our Father. And so as his children, we come before him, and we address him as Father in expressing our love and tenderness toward him, and he does so in expecting us to call him Father. It's a wonderful thing. That this God who is judge, lawgiver, and king would have us call him Father. One of the most intimate of terms. And so we remark how infinite is his condescension toward those who draw near to him through the ordinance of prayer. It's infinite condescension. He is infinitely above us. He is God Almighty. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable as we're taught, and yet in mercy and love, he permits us to call upon him as Father. It's an amazing thing. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's the way the unbeliever approaches God, if he does so at all. He approaches him in fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is the instinctive address of a child of the king. So we're taught in the word, but there is this desire, this longing in the heart to address him as our father. So that's the first part of the preface. Any questions or comments on uh, Bonnie? It's not wrong at all. Not at all. This is old-fashioned old language. They say which, <clears throat> but the personal pronoun, they're fine. Okay. I thought that might be old-fashioned. Yeah. 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 Good job. You've been praying well. <clears throat> Anybody else? Tell me move on. Oh, Bruce? Right. 
Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Bruce. And I think there's this wonderful blend of filial reverence, a childlike love and trust and intimacy, but there's reverence. Like, your son, I would presume, now I'm presuming, but I doubt your son would say, hey, dude, how's it going? Right? And you'd say, w- w- you're calling me dude? It'd be totally inappropriate, right? So it's the same way with God. We, we're intimate in fellowship, but we do address him reverently. Yeah. Okay. So we draw near to him. The question says, or the answer says, with both holy reverence and confidence. This is getting back to Bruce's point. Holy reverence. It's distinguished from the dutiful respect that everyone owes to their creator. Creatures, as you know, are morally obligated to respect God, as children are obligated morally to respect their parents, the command of the fifth commandment. So it is a moral obligation as a creature to address the creator with respect. And therefore, we say that the light of nature, this, this dim light as it is, but the light of nature that God puts within us teaches us that we should revere him as God Almighty. He is the creator. He is the judge to whom we will give an account. They should seek God, for in him we live and move and have our being. So all people are morally obligated to respect the true and living God. We're duty-bound to worship and adore him as creator, as benefactor. He gives us our daily bread and our judge. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. No exception. Every creature under heaven. Worship him. Come into his presence with singing. But the Christian, we're taught in the preface, is to call upon God as a reconciled father through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And that is an incredible privilege. And I don't want to belabor it too much, but I think it's worth belaboring because it's an incredible and lofty privilege. We open our prayers with what they call holy reverence to God, who is our Father by right of redemption. And what makes our reverence holy, or what makes it filial, and you'll understand the word filial is that word that describes the relationship between a parent and a child. That's a filial relationship. What makes our reverence holy or filial is the sincere belief in Christ and a conscious walk with the Holy Spirit. And that belief is a gift from God. So it's all of grace. But we come before this majestic creator, this king who sits upon the throne that Isaiah saw in all of its majesty, and you can address him as father. And I don't think we understand or appreciate that particular privilege enough. He infuses grace into his children by the Holy Spirit so that we're characterized by a supernatural principle of holiness and love. This is given from heaven. And, you know, prayer, of course, is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life, which is why Satan will do everything he can to interrupt it, to distract us from it, to teach us not to want to do it. But when we start, if you make that first step and you begin praying... Tell me if I'm wrong. Every time when you're done, you're like, oh, I'm so thankful I prayed. It's a wonderful thing, this intimate fellowship with God. It's a means of grace. Reverence consists in a profound inward esteem of God and devotion to God as our Heavenly Father. 
So this preface, as we begin to think about prayer, this preface is teaching us this holy reverence in his presence. With a childlike disposition, we endure patiently. We obey willingly. We worship him sincerely, and we trust him implicitly. That's the childlike disposition. He's our father. I may not understand everything, as we'll see in the sermon. I may not understand providence. It's so confusing to me what's going on in the world. Things that I have to endure. I don't get it. But I know the word tells me he's good. He's always good. And so as a child, I trust him in the midst of anything. Any questions on this particular slide or things we've talked about here? Holy reference. Okay. The question also says that we have confidence. We're confident in prayer, and that, pro- that confidence is rooted in his fatherly goodness. He's a good father. Job, can you imagine losing 10 children in one fell swoop? They're dead. You've lost everything. And what did he do? He worshiped. How could he do that in the presence of such misery? Well, because he trusted in the fatherly goodness of his God. Lord, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to complain about it. I'm going to argue, but I trust you. He worshiped. And I think that's one of the lessons of the book of Job. We don't understand everything. But he is sovereign, and he is good. As followers of Christ... We have a share in his paternal care and compassion. We can assure ourselves of that by his promises. Sadly, an unbeliever has no claim to Christ. And he can know God only as a creator and judge, as an unbeliever. And so he has this dreadful sense of judgment that he must deal with day in and day out. He has this horror in his conscience of the final judgment that he knows is coming deep down. He might try to suppress it. He might try to ignore it, but he knows it's coming. But the believer can draw near to this God as the Father by the spirit of adoption given to us out of grace. And he enables us to call upon God as Abba, Father. So we trust this God He is our Father, who we know is able and willing to help us, because why? How do we know that he's able and willing? Because he sent his Son. That's why we need to be people of the cross. If you're ever tempted to doubt the love of God, and believe me, we're all tempted, right? You endure difficulty, tragedy, disappointment, discouragement. We're tempted to doubt his goodness. Always look back at the cross. That's the supreme demonstration of goodness. There's nothing like that. Romans 5, he sent his son to die for us. God loves us. He sent his spirit to fill us. God loves us. Don't ever doubt his goodness or his love. God shows his love for us. How? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he's an all-sufficient God who's boundless in his generosity, who's faithful to fulfill his promises. History has simply recorded the proof of that. He has never failed, ever, to fulfill his promise. It may take longer than we'd like, but he's never failed. We enjoy the blessings of the covenant. We partake of Christ's fullness. We eat the bread of life every single week. What a privilege. 
Again, the unbeliever can call upon God as his creator and judge, but he has no authority, none whatsoever, to call upon him as a father. There's no such thing as the brotherhood of man. There are two families. There is the unbelieving family and there is the believing family, and that's it. And it's only the believing family that can call upon him as a father. The unbeliever can call upon him as creator. The unbeliever can call upon him as judge. He won't. He refuses to come before him in prayer. But if, in fact, he does for some reason, like in a foxhole or something, he's creator and judge. So great is the privilege. I'm sorry, was there a question? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Great is the privilege of drawing near to the Almighty with this childlike reverence and holy boldness. You know, the New Testament, it's staggered that we can become so bold in our petitions before the Father. It's incredible. And therefore, we as Christians, recognizing our privilege, should praise and adore Him for the privileges. It's a great encouragement. We who were by nature strangers and enemies to God, we may enjoy free access into His holy presence. You know, the whole, when Jason went through um, Exodus and Leviticus, I thought it was so good because he showed us Exodus, they built the tabernacle, right? Here's this intricate way of approaching God, holy God. And then Leviticus, he told us how, this is how we approach God. All these intricate details and ceremonies and rituals and so forth, just to get into the presence of God. And only one person could actually go into his presence once a year. And now, we can all approach him and call him Father. What a privilege that is. We're led to believe that God hears and answers our imperfect prayer, and they're all imperfect, as far as it serves his glory and our good. What a wonderful thing. He knows our prayers are defiled in his sight, and Jesus takes those prayers and offers them up and makes them acceptable. Any questions on this particular slide before we move on? Okay. Well, then, offering our prayers to our Father implies our own faith and confidence. These qualities, faith and filial confidence, are found only in the Christian who is united to Christ. Everything flows from our union with Christ. He is our head, our representative. He gives us authority as children of God, John 1. You've been born not of the will of the flesh, the will of man, or bloods, but of God. You've been born again, and you've been given the authority to become children of God. What a privilege. In prayer, we address the God and Father, therefore, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is because the Lord Jesus mediates that we can come into his presence. And again... It highlights the sad case of those outside of Christ and the immense and lofty privilege of those who are in Christ. He has no special interest in God as Father. He must face him one day only as a judge. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God and what a dreadful and ominous thing that is. The believer has the assurance that before God's throne the white throne of judgment, he'll be openly acknowledged and acquitted. So Jesus will be happy and pleased to put his arm around you 
and say, this is one of mine. He or she is your child, and God will say, with you I am well pleased. Don? Yeah, I look at John 15, where uh, Jesus addresses, uh, says we can look at him as a friend rather than a servant. I think it gives us the closeness, the relationship. We don't have an authoritarian problem. We have a loving one. Right. Yeah, very well said. And it's a good discernment. I think you're right. He says there in John 15 that I don't call you servants, as you said. I call you friends. And why does he, how does he show that we're his friends? Because he tells us what his father's will is. He communicates. There is this communication. And that implies the prayer going back and that he is a loving father. Those of us who may have had domineering or tyrannical fathers, um, we can look to Christ and see a living demonstration of the loving Father we have in heaven. I've met many people who have been soured on the whole idea of God the Father because they, in God's providence, had difficulty with their own father. And that's sad, and it's, it's, it's not good. But the Bible is clear that if you've had um, an imperfect father, you have a perfect one in the one in heaven. So, Laura? But we have to maintain balance because I've met people who have cheapened Jesus because what a friend we have in Jesus. Right. Right. So there has to still be the awe and the reverence and the respect. Right. Exactly. That, that blend, right. That filial reverence. You're right. I'm sorry? Unacceptable. The only prayer that an unbeliever can offer that's in any way accepted by God is one of repentance. If the unbeliever calls upon God, it's an abomination to him. Well, you, you often hear people's testimony saying, you know, they got to the point where they just cried out, God, if you're really there, let me know. You know? Right. And in some way, God reveals himself. And then, and I, I've heard those testimonies too. And what that is is the Spirit leading them in this whole process of repentance and faith. If they've come to know Jesus, that is the Spirit leading them to know the Lord through Christ. But if it's just an unbeliever who says, "I'm just going to pray to God," well, the the Old Testament, the Psalms tell us that their prayers are an abomination if they're not through the mediation of the Son. They cannot be acceptable by the Father. But at that point, they wouldn't understand or know. Right. So, if the Spirit is leading, like me, I, I was an unbeliever. I was a non-Christian. I didn't have a clue. Born again. <clears throat> Had no categories into which to put this. What, what's going on with me? And the guy, my friend upstairs, who wanted me to go to the bar with him, which I normally did, he came down and I said, I think I'm getting close to God. And he said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and so I didn't go, but I mean, my prayers were so imperfect. But it was this process of leading me into the faith through Jesus Christ. So that's the prayer that God accepts. The Spirit is enabling the sinner to repent. That's the beginning of repentance unto life. That's the kind of prayer that he'll accept. It's imperfect, it's defiled, it's 
ignorant in many respects, but it is leading to Christ. Now, the unbeliever who is arrogant and proud and unbelieving and just wants to take things from God. Lord, I'd like to be wealthy. You know, something like that. Those prayers are not acceptable. There's no faith. There's no seed of the Spirit. There's no repentance whatsoever. Yes, <clears throat> if the Spirit's leading them to seek God. But you see, as Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks God. No one. So the only way somebody would seek God is if the Spirit is leading them to repentance. So yeah, getting into the mechanics of the, the precise point when I, I know Jesus is the mediator, I, I had no clue. I just knew that... I was a guilty sinner in need of forgiveness, and the only way I could do it was to go before God. And he had provided a mediator, and I said, okay, Jesus, you know. At that point, I was not going to resist. It was true repentance, and I think he accepts that through Christ. Yeah, Linda? It's highly inappropriate and offensive to God to pray through the saints. Totally unbiblical, sinful. Now, does that mean it's, they're going to hell? I, that's not for me to judge. Um, I think that many, I'll put it this way, God does accept many things that are unbiblical in our lives when our hearts are right with Christ. All I know is that praying to or through saints is sinful. So we are not to do it. And he will hold us accountable for the light that we've been given. So I've told you, don't do it. <laughs> oh, Rob? I'd say first join the club. Um, yeah, we struggle with sin, and it is a burden. And it's a, it's, a, it's a real struggle every day. And the last thing, oftentimes, that I want to do is to pray, because I know I'm guilty, I'm corrupt, I'm, I'm a failure in so many ways. And that's when God says, I am your Father, and I made you, and I redeemed you, and I want you to come and pour out your heart to me so that I can encourage and, and strengthen you. Yeah. So I, just, I, I think we just have to get into the habit. This is where the discipline comes. The discipline of prayer. When you want to do it, when you don't want to do it, you've sinned for the 77th time, the same sin that you've asked for forgiveness 76 times, go again. And he says, I will forgive you and I'll cover your sin by the blood of Christ and I'll welcome you into my presence. It's an amazing thing. It staggered the disciples. I mean, they're supposed to follow the example of their father in forgiving each other 77 times, or 470-some times, right? So, I think just knowing the idea, knowing that God is our father, and beginning to meditate upon that. I mean, would you reject your child if he ever came to you with a request? No. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, won't the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him? So... 
The Christian death has been transformed. Oh, we need not fear lacking earthly comforts because we have a heavenly Father who's able and willing to help us. We need not fear departing this world, death, when we die. Death has been transformed into a friend, so that, as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To the unbeliever, death is a great loss. It's a huge loss because he loses all of his comforts, all of his hopes, his dreams, his desires. It ends. And there's never-ending pain. But to the believer, death is a great gain because it delivers him from all evil and it ushers him into glory. What a wonderful thing. So Paul can say, die is gain, you know. I heard a voice from heaven saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Truly are blessed. Any questions on this slide? Any comments before we move on? Okay. Just thinking about the communities having multi-faith prayer days of prayer. It seems like it's a human effort. Yeah. These ecumenical services where you have a Muslim and a, a Jewish rabbi and a Christian minister and all kinds of different representatives, you, you can't. Those prayers are unacceptable because they will not pray in the name of Jesus. They will tell you not to pray in the name of Jesus. And if you are a sincere Christian minister, now some Christian ministers are not, but if you're sincere, you say, I, I can't pray without praying in the name of Jesus. So, yeah, that's why we don't participate in those. Not that I, you know, might be decent human beings who would help their neighbor, but we will not participate in those ecumenical services. Eric? Yeah, I mean, if they tell you, I'm going to pray for you, okay, thank you. You know, the, the, the intent, I suppose, is good, but you know that their prayer is not going to do any good. But if they say, hey, can we do something together? And it might be an opportunity for you to say winsomely, you know, um, I'm a little uncomfortable with that for this reason. And it might be a, a way in. I remember when I was ordained, one of the family friends, Lynn knows who this is, <laughs> she... She texted me and she said, well, now that you're a minister of the gospel, would you please bless my wedding ring? <laughs> and I, I couldn't. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Um, God will bless you, but I can't bless your wedding ring. Does it make any difference? You know, you made a promise, keep it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Matt. Living for him? Yeah. I think it was hard for Paul. How do we balance the longing to die and be with Christ and serving him on earth? I think it was hard. But he recognized that God is sovereign and it pleased him to continue using Paul as far as he was able. But he, he wanted to go to heaven. That's where his heart was. That's what we all should be thinking. You don't take your own life. You don't put yourself in harm's way intentionally. Like some of the early Christians who wanted to be martyrs, 
here I am, shoot me, you know. That, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to serve the Lord in our generation as far as we're able. And when God calls us home, it's according to his good pleasure. So yeah, it's a struggle. But people depend on you. The church depends on you, even though you may not think so. If Matt's gone, I think we'd be disadvantaged. You know, your gifts, your graces, your presence, you're important. But if God sees fit to take you home, then we recognize, okay, Lord, he, you must need him in heaven more than we need him on earth. So we acknowledge that. Yeah. Okay, so it teaches us to pray with and for others because it's our Father. So we pray not only for, by and for ourselves in our private closets, but with and for other people publicly. We do pray with one another. The prayer meeting is one of the most important aspects of the Christian church. The public worship is one of the most important aspects of the Christian church. We pray together, and we pray for one another, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Rob, keep, keep at it, keep at it, persevering in prayer, making supplication for all the saints. We need each other's prayers. God uses them. He is said to be in heaven in this preface to highlight his sovereign power and dominion. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There is no being above him. The highest beings, the archangels, are beneath him. He's absolutely sovereign. He can search your heart. He can hear your request. He can pardon your sins, and he can fulfill your desires. He alone. That's why we pray to him. And he acts according to his own sovereign good pleasure, and he is absolutely free in doing so. And it also implies our Father in heaven, this infinite distance between God and his creature. Again, the infinite condescension that he would listen to us. The infinite distance between us, and the need for a mediator to raise our prayers into his presence, to make them acceptable. There's that, there's that passage in Revelation 5 which talks about, um, I think, the four living creatures and the 24 elders having bowls of incense, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, filled with prayers and just offering them up. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? Because God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, I think, brevity is a virtue. When before his throne, I don't mean that your prayers have to be short. I think what it means is that our words should be carefully weighed and measured. That doesn't mean extemporaneous prayer is wrong, but it does mean you think about what you're saying right? You don't just repeat the mantras um, that are so common in some of the cults. It's not, a mon it's not the number of words that he listens to. It's the intent and the sincerity of the heart. It implies that when we approach the divine presence in public worship, we think about what we say and what we pray. And there's nothing wrong with writing your prayers down and offering them. There's nothing wrong with praying a prayer that somebody else has written, as long as you make it your own. Because that's what we do in public prayer. When you say the amen after I've prayed, 
That's your prayer. Which is why you need to listen to make sure, okay, does he, is he saying things that are biblical? Is everything he prayed, is it okay and lawful? If so, amen. If not, don't give the amen. Don't say amen if you don't agree with everything in that prayer. Now, if I pray for someone that you don't like, that's not reason for withholding the amen. Okay? That's not good. Carelessness, flippancy, thoughtless words are implicitly condemned as an insult to his majesty. So, again, careful, thoughtful. Any questions before we go on? Okay. We have to have heavenly affections. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Getting back to Matt's question, our hearts are there. Set your minds on things above, Colossians 3, not on things that are on earth. So if we had our druthers, we'd be there, right? But the Lord has us here. Oh, I'm healthy. <laughs> uh, my friend uh, Dave Janotka, some of you know the pizza guy at Farinacci's Pizza. He had liver or, uh, kidney problems, and... Um, he had to get a kidney transplant, but until that time, he'd wake up and he'd say, ah, I woke up again. <laughs> Darn. We look to God as being infinitely above us and having authority over us. We, to him, we look with expectation of grace and mercy from his throne. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, I don't want to pray right now. I need your grace. So I go to prayer to get it, to pray. Doesn't that seem strange? But it's true. It's the means of grace. Our hearts have to concur, go along with our lips. Otherwise, they will not ascend to heaven. As we offer our prayers, God hears our mouths speak, but is more concerned with how our hearts feel. We are into feelings. We do. Feeling is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It can't govern us. It can't lead us. But feeling, are you sincere? That doesn't mean you're happy. It means you're sincere. Where's your heart? The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David was a man after his own heart. And if our inward disposition is not to some degree in harmony with our outward expression, then God is mocked. Are the words that you're offering in prayer, are they an expression of your heart? Or are they just mouthed? Their lips honor me, but their hearts, they're far from me. Their worship is vain. So in essence, prayer is the lifting up of the soul to God and the opening up of the heart to commune with him. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before. He's big enough to handle your complaints. He's big enough to handle any burden you lay up before him in prayer. He can see your heart anyway. Let him know. He loves to hear his children pray. We confess our sins. We lay out our complaints. We offer up our desires. We express our gratitude. And we rejoice in Christ. Again, the privilege. The immense privilege that we have. Even this morning, going before him, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive. That's the power of prayer. 
Any questions on that one? Okay, Rob? Hopefully by example. There's no better way. You can tell them till you're blue in the face. Revere God. But if you don't, they won't. Four years old? Oh, they, they know exactly what's going on. Three years old? Two years old? You bring them in worship? Well, they can't give you a theological description of what's going on, but they know, hey, something's different here. These people... They look reverent to me. It's like beauty. You can't define it, but you know what it is when you see it, right? Reverence. Maybe I can't define it. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly why mom and dad are reverent here. And Mr. Gillen and Mrs. Gillen and everybody else. But I recognize it. And if I get out of line, I feel it, you know. <laughs> Anastasia? God, God calls his visible church to pray. And they are Christians. Now, whether they're believers, we don't know. But Christians are those who've been identified as belonging to God through baptism. The Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. Why? Because they were entered into the visible church. So they are Christians. And there is this sense in which they are set apart from the unbelieving world to worship. When that new birth happens, we don't know. But we say, God, here's the child. He's offering a prayer, mimicking us in prayer through Jesus. And we pray that it's acceptable to you. So we teach them to pray and to offer up their desires in Jesus' name. Not in the Father's name, not in the Spirit's name, Jesus' name. When you pray, do not close your prayer and say, in your name. Not good. It's, it may be ignorant in some, so he'll accept it out of ignorance, but in Jesus' name, so important. Okay, final slide. There should be order and progress in our prayers. It should not all be jumbled together. There's a preface. There's a beginning. We preface all things by acknowledging his majesty and his grace. We don't rush into his presence without reverently addressing him. Hey, dude, no. Our Father, who art in heaven. Should not children address adults by first using appropriate titles? Mr. Walsh, good morning. Right? If a three-year-old came up to you and said, hey, Jordan, good morning. I mean, wouldn't you be a little bit offended? I would be. Maybe I'm old school, but... I think children should be taught to address their superiors, their adults, with a title. So, Mr. Walsh, good morning. I think I've told the story of one young man, a teenager, good, good guy, but every morning, Sunday morning, I walk in and say, good morning, so-and-so. Hey. Until one Sunday, I just had it. I said, when I address you as so-and-so, good morning, you say, good morning, Pastor Wright. He was like 16 years old, and he was bigger than me. Um, but after that, he did. So, teachable. We should strive to maintain reverential thoughts of God's majesty, his unparalleled greatness, all the hosts of heaven. Think of that. All the hosts of heaven worship him. And they do so with the utmost reverence 
and the most sincere adoration. Now, if the hosts of heaven do that, shouldn't we? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help me to worship you and to pray with that kind of, of, of reverence. Be thankful for his infinite condescension and the wonder of his love. May we, who defaced his image, dwell in houses of clay, deserve to be cast out, fellowship with him. It's incredible. We're taught to be humble and modest in all of our approaches. We meditate on the glory of heaven where we hope to join those who bask in his presence. After this I looked, said John, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, purified, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The ultimate prayer and praise. Any final comments? Yeah, I think it's strange. She said sometimes adult kids call their parents by their first name. I don't think it's wrong when they reach adulthood. It's a little bit strange, I think, because the command honor your father and mother never ceases. And I think part of that honor is a little bit of respect. Now, isn't that relationship filial? Hey, Dad. So Dad is this combination of respect and intimacy. It's okay. If, I don't know, if Sue called me dad, it'd be kind of weird, you know. You're, I'm not your dad, you know. But we're equals. If, um, if one of your children called me dad, it'd be strange. So, dad? Right, it is a privilege. It's a privilege. And it, it does bespeak that relationship, that intimacy. But there's still a title. If they called me Scott, <clears throat> it would be strange. I would feel weird. I think they would feel weird. <laughs> She's smiling and nodding. Yes, I think she'd feel weird. Do they call you Pastor Wright? <laughs> no. <laughs> they roast the pastor now and then at lunch, but they don't call me Pastor Wright. So, anyway. Uh, wonderful conversation. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we enjoy in Christ of addressing you as our Father. You are great, and you're majestic, and you're thrice holy. And yet you've invited us to approach you with such holy boldness that we are almost staggered by the privilege. Please prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.